are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Before I get into this, actually, it's kind of like a transition into this. Um, uh, these last few weekends, uh, I think the last, last weekend was the last one, we've kind of been pushing uh, your participation in an upcoming message series called You Asked For. It's going to uh, come into play, I think, the last week of July. And you had those uh, pieces of paper on your chairs where you got to kind of uh, voice how your, your own uh, spirit is doing. We kind of wanted to get the spiritual temperature of those at Southwest, asking if you could ask God something, what would it be? Or is there something that um, us from, we from the stage haven't addressed that you think we should? Anything like that. And we got a ton of responses, and I uh, logged all those, I think, on Tuesday. And uh, lots of powerful, exciting, even some entertaining things uh, that we're going to uh, do with that. But uh, there, was one, there was one submission that stood out just because I think it speaks to the um, the attitude or the, um, the feeling that Paul kind of addresses to uh, the Galatians that we're going to talk about today. It's kind of a mindset or a state of our, spir- our spiritual state uh, that a lot of us have um, fallen into, either in the past, we might in the future, or even a lot of us might be here, um, here even today. Anyway, uh, I wanted to just kind of read what this person uh, wrote in. This is what, all these were anonymous, so uh, there's no telling who wrote this, but uh, I just felt led to uh, share this submission as we kind of go into Galatians 4 today. But this is what this uh, person confided and wanted addressed at some point. This person wrote, I feel like to be a good Christian, I need to volunteer for everything and help everyone because I feel guilty if I don't, like I'm not good enough. But because of that, I neglect other things like cleaning my house, reading books, exercise, and time with friends. How do I say no without being accused of not being a good Christian? Again, just reading that, it's a, it's a super common thought. It's a super common state of people's spiritual being, just this idea that uh, in order to be a good Christian, I need to do, 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 and then there's that kind of guilt that goes along with it, which could speak to, maybe that sounds super familiar to you. Uh, anyway, that's kind of the direction we're going in Galatians 4 this morning, so just kind of wanted to set the tone there. Uh, We've been in Galatians for, this is the fourth week for it, and just kind of like a review. Uh, Galatians, it's a letter that Paul wrote. If we're looking at the New Testament chronologically, this is probably the first entry chronologically in the New Testament, written in the late 40s, early 50s of the first century. And the Apostle Paul writes this to this group of believers up in Galatia, and this is Paul at his most urgent. This is Paul at his most emotional, and it's him at his most personal, at least until, you know, his, his later letters like the Timothy's. And the backstory is uh, he was spending time with these people and he convinced them that the only way, the one way to a right relationship with God was faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Because up to that point, uh, they thought it was just about keeping a theological checkbook, or, uh, yeah, making just checks along their, these, you know, um, their religious to-do lists. And once the Galatians experienced this, once they learned this from Paul, they experienced a certain type of spiritual freedom where they didn't feel like their relationship with God was a chore, That was kind of the state that they were in. You know, they actually enjoyed a relationship with Jesus, and they were fed by it, and they were blessed by it. And that was great. And so then Paul leaves to go do his next thing. And then as soon as Paul leaves, 
it all kind of unravels. It all kind of falls apart. Right after Paul leaves, some spiritual bullies, they come in and say, hey, Paul was wrong. Don't listen to him. And they convinced everyone once again that obeying all the rules, living that kind of lifestyle, was the one way to a right relationship with God. And you can imagine that when Paul hears it's just what it did to his emotional state. Like I said, I, I call this Paul's angry letter. You don't see it, Paul's emotions come through quite as much as you do in this particular letter. And there's a reason for it. Uh, these people that he loved, these people that were as close to him as family, they just gave up. They stopped believing. They just stopped living as, as if, you know, this authentic gospel that they learned from Paul was just not true. They went back to an old life of pretty much religious slavery. And you might think, you know, Paul might be getting a little out of hand, but, you know, we are, when it comes to the gospel, we are always dealing with people's eternity. Not just this life, but people's eternity. And when anything like that is endangered, it becomes cause for a lot of emotional things, including Paul's anger. So Paul writes this letter. That's all he could do, because he was off doing other things, and he couldn't get a message to them quickly. He sits down and writes a letter, and we're in this uh, week four of this Gospel and Chain series. Today's title is just called Sons and Slaves out of Galatians 4. If you have the Bible with you, we're pretty much going to be in Galatians 4, the first 20 verses. We're going to take a trip into Mark 4 later, but those are pretty much where we're going to camp out. In Paul's goal, he's trying to convince these people once again that faith is the only way to a right relationship with God, faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And all throughout this letter, he's throwing out, you know, different uh, deferring beliefs. He has, you know, he lays side by side the authentic gospel versus a fake gospel. He talks about law versus grace, and he talks about faith versus works, and he talks about old covenant and new covenant all throughout this letter. And today he brings that same argument, just kind of from a different angle, where he compares uh, the life of a, a son or daughter of a father versus life as a slave. So we're going to jump in right, out, right into Galatians 4. Here are the first seven verses. This is what Paul writes. He says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he would adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, just the most intimate thing that you could call God. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Uh, all this children speak and just kind of how children were in the first century got me to thinking about children today. Uh, you might have children who did this, or you might remember doing this yourself. Uh, we celebrate a lot of uh, holidays, you know, in this country, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, and then there are Valentine's Day and all that. And um, certainly we uh, celebrate birthdays and all that, but I was kind of, you know, getting back into the mindset of how I was when I was back in my single digits, you know, because uh, you only think selfishly at that age. So, you know, you have your birthday and you get presents then, and you have Christmas and you typically get presents then. Maybe some stuff on Easter, but really you kind of have two big holidays to look forward to. And then you start thinking as you get a little older, start putting things together that, you know, uh, there's Mother's Day where we celebrate mothers, and then there's Father's Day we celebrate fathers. And uh, some, I didn't grow up with this, but uh, some kids, they're kind of expected to uh, celebrate their parents' anniversary with them. And 
Uh, kids, they do math. Um, so I'll just speak for my own thing. It's like, okay, I have two days out of the year when I get gifts. But if I'm like counting mom, mom has a birthday, mom has Christmas, mom has uh, Valentine's Day that maybe I got to throw like a card her way, then there's an anniversary. And I said, did I say that there's one thing I missed and I feel like, maybe an anniversary or Mother's Day, something like that. So I'm like, I only got two days. Mom and dad had like as many as five. So you're like, this is not fair. So every kid has this thought that there needs to be a children's day, right? Have you come across this in your own house? So there's that day that the kid puts together and they, they, as serious as they can be, they bring this grand idea to mom or dad and say, mom, dad, there needs to be a children's day with a big smile on their face. And you know your line, the line from every parent with a just no smile, not even a smirk, just as serious as you can be, your line is every day is. See, you, you know how this goes. Well, in the first century, there... Oh, before I get there, um, I have a... There's like a small gift for like all the children in the room. Turns out... Turns out there is an actual Children's Day that is celebrated in the United States. I just found this out like two weeks ago. The only bet... Let's see, we celebrate... Um, Children's Day, it's for, uh, let's see, yeah, we celebrate the faith, hope, love, and commitment we give to our children. Not that we don't do that every day. But the only bad news is this year, Children's Day was celebrated June 12th, so we just missed it. So mark your calendars, always the second, always the second uh, Sunday in June, which I thought was comical because it's like right between Mother's Day and Father's Day, so even then you got to share a day. <laughs> Anyway, in the first century, uh, children, they would not have come up with this idea. It wouldn't even have been thought of. Uh, They just kind of had a different place in society than we do uh, in 2016. Uh, It's not that children weren't loved. It's just that uh, they didn't have the same kind of inherent value. They weren't seen so much as children, so much as they were seen as future adults. And they kind of lived life as more of a, they lived that philosophy of, you know, be seen but not heard, that sort of mentality, and... Uh, again, they just didn't kind of have that same stature in society as they do today. They were just seen more as, hey, one day you're going to have a whole lot of value, and that's going to come with just what you can do or bring to the family later on in life when you are an adult. So anyway, uh, Paul, he, he lays out this analogy, this, this comparison of what life with Jesus versus life without Jesus would look like. He puts on the page this uh, idea of a child that grows up in his father's household And he also brings in the idea of a slave that grows up or is a part of the same household. Before I kind of unpack this, I will say that when you hear or read slave in the in the Bible or in the New Testament, uh, don't think you know when we hear the word slave, we have a certain connotation just growing up in this country. Kind of a different idea in Paul's context. It's more similar to what we know as indentured servitude. And if you need a reminder of what that is, like I did. Uh, we're just going to go back to history class really briefly. Back in the day when you know, people were coming from Europe over to America, a lot of people want to get over here for the opportunity and just that fresh new beginning idea. Uh, but a lot of people just didn't have the means or the money to uh, take the ship from Europe to America. So some poor guy would go to a rich guy and say, hey, if you pay my way, then once we get over there, I will be your servant for three years, five years, seven years, depending on how many family members they had. So it wasn't slavery, it was just like a, an indentured servitude. It, had, it was a servanthood with a, with, a, with a term on it. So when you read slave or hear slave, think more indentured servant. That's probably truer to what was going on in the first century. So we got a kid growing up and we got this indentured servant. And Paul goes through a scenario where he says, okay, suppose a father passes away and when that happens, you have uh, an inheritance that he has set aside for this kid. 
And, you know, it's, it's in the will and all that, and it's all written down. And uh, here's what happens. Uh, on paper, this eight-year-old kid, <clears throat> everything that his father had now belongs to him. But because he's a kid, he really can't handle that kind of responsibility. We're not going to give an eight-year-old, you know, thousands of dollars. We're not going to give him control of a property. But when his, before his father passes away, he says, when he is this many years of age, in my mind, he's going to stop being a kid. He's going to start being a man. At this day, everything that he has coming to him is going to belong to him, everything. He gets all control. He gets all the benefits of everything I've left him. So in the mind of the kid, even though he has an inheritance coming, there's a day set on the calendar where everything changes for him. And somewhat different with this servant over here who's going up in the same household. Uh, both these people, they're under the authority of uh, a trustee or just someone in a, that position of authority. But there's really no hope for this, uh, this slave, this indentured servant, at least until, not until his, his time runs up. He can't, everything he does in his life, he's just under slavery. He's under rules. He doesn't have any unique freedoms to himself. There's hope for this kid over here. He's going to enjoy a lot of freedom later on, but not this particular individual. It's a difference between a son or a daughter and a slave. And what Paul says, we're kind of bringing this back into a relationship with Jesus, is, you know, all of us at one point, we were kind of living this, this slave nature. We're enslaved to a certain sin or just enslaved to whatever this world wants to entrap us with. We know the world is difficult to live in. But I, if you look back in verse uh, 4, Paul writes, When the right time came, God sent his son. And just as that date on the calendar for that child when he becomes a man, that is like our date on the calendar when Jesus comes into our lives, when he came at just the right time for all of us, that's when everything changed. If you're a Jesus follower, uh, most of you maybe can maybe even point to a specific day on the calendar where uh, Jesus became real for you. And when that day came, you give your life to Jesus, you say, yeah, he's going to be the center of my life. That's the day when... Uh, you don't have to be a slave to anything of the world anymore. You experience a certain type of spiritual freedom. What Paul is offering, he says, we get to be sons, complete sons and daughters of God if we want to be. If we accept Jesus, then we get to enjoy the full access that a, you know, we get the blessings, we get the promises that comes with a relationship with God that uh, only comes through a relationship with Jesus. You know, Paul is doing everything he can to convince these people once again that, you know, faith and belief, faith, trust, belief, that's all you need if you're going to put this sin nature and this life of religious enslavement to the side. He can't, he can't convey this strong enough. It is that important to him. But what the people up in Galatia, they're saying, they're pretty much saying with their lives that, you know, I don't need the saving work of Jesus in my life. All I need is myself. Which you say that out loud, it sounds pretty extreme, but we all know that actions speak louder than words. Even now, you know, we fall into this thing that uh, everyone, you know, we, a lot of people grow up with the idea that, oh, I need to be a good person. If I'm a good enough person, then God will love me more or I can earn a place in heaven. Uh, we've all been in that mindset where we know someone who struggles with that mindset. And anytime you go into this, uh, this period of living where you just try and check off lists all the time and you're not just resting and enjoying what a relationship with Jesus is all about, you're just so focused on do, 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 it is just so damaging. When we live that way, we are communicating to the world that uh, whatever Jesus did on the cross was a waste of his time. I don't need that. I'm good on my own. Which again, saying that out loud... It sounds extreme, because it is. But a lot of actions speak that way. 
Paul keeps writing. We're in verse 10 now of Galatians 4. Paul writes, You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become, like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Uh, one frustration in reading you know, the Bible, we, they don't throw a lot of backstory. They don't throw a whole lot of, hey, this is how Paul was feeling at this time. So I just kind of want to re- revisit just Paul's emotional state. He just comes out and says in verse 11, I fear for you. Not I'm nervous, not I'm a little worried, just legitimate I fear for you. Because, again, we are dealing with nothing less than people's understanding of eternity and what the gospel means for them. And he's just, at the end of his rope, perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. He wants everyone to be free from the thought that we have to work or earn our salvation. You know, Paul doesn't want them, he doesn't want us today, you know, going through our days, wringing our hands, wondering if we're actually saved or not. He's saying, yeah, you can have assurance of salvation if you want it. And it's super easy to fall into this thinking. You know, some of us have grown up with the idea, again, you know, if we're a good person, then I'm good. But when we start thinking that sort of mindset, that that's what uh, following God, being a Jesus follower is all about, that it's all about being a good person, uh, we start worshiping Jesus less and less, and we start worshiping what I'll call the idol of good behavior. If I put all my energy and focus on good behavior, then that means I can't worship Jesus, and then we get into a period of uh, apathy and frustration and guilt and all those bad things that make people want to stop following Jesus altogether. Uh, one thing I wanted to offer you guys, uh, this is, these are uh, some maybe good things to write if you're a note-taking person. Uh, I just kind of wanted to give you guys 12 signs or indications that uh, you either might be following or falling into believing a different kind of gospel, a false gospel, or these are behaviors or signs that uh, you might be spiritually complacent or apathetic. Um, I didn't come up with these myself. Uh, some guy um, who talked to me a long time ago who's smarter than me, he gave me these, so I'm giving them now to you. Uh, there's going to be, uh, I think, three slides of four each, so we'll walk through some of these. Uh, some signs that you're spiritually complacent or believing a different kind of gospel. One, your life is on autopilot. Uh, you wake up, you know, you do your thing, you come home, you go to sleep. Every day is pretty much the same, not a whole lot of excitement. Uh, maybe the best, maybe the best, the comparison is we've heard of highway hypnosis. You know, uh, you've driven from home to work or work to home so many days in your life that uh, you really don't even have to think about it. So one day, you know, you, really, you get off at five and then you get home and you realize, oh, I don't even remember anything about the drive. I just know that I made it. You just find yourself inside your driveway. Uh, maybe bring that feeling into your just day-to-day life, your life being on autopilot. Something else is just an acceptance of mediocrity. You don't expect anything excellent. You don't expect anything uh, exciting or grand to come into your life or even the work that you put out either at home or in relationships or uh, at your job. You just, you just kind of go through your day-to-day with just a shrug. Like, uh, that's fine. An acceptance of mediocrity. A third thing is you have a loss of gratitude. You've lost the spirit of being thankful for all that you have or all that you, that's been given to you, just all the blessings in your life. And whenever, you, uh, whenever uh, someone kind of starts being less and less grateful, uh, I find they start to become more and more bitter. I've never known someone who is both grateful and bitter. I don't think those two can coexist. So maybe there's a loss of gratitude. Uh, something else we've kind of talked about, you just have this chronic sense of guilt. I just feel guilty all the time, and maybe for something that you have been doing, or probably more likely feeling guilty for something that you have not been doing, or maybe you just can't even pinpoint why you feel this way, but just this, uh, just this, um, this uneasiness just in your bones, just this uh, onward, ongoing sense of guilt. 
Next slide, we have uh, maybe there's unresolved conflict in relationships. Uh, whether it's a friendship on the rocks or someone that you live with at your home or uh, someone at work, whoever is involved in your life, uh, there's just like, I don't know, you're with this person and there's just always this uh, elephant in the room that's never actually dealt with or you're just grown accustomed to sweeping difficult things under the rug and uh, hoping that if you ignore it, it'll just go away on its own. Just living in a world where if there's conflict in the relationship, nothing's being said, you just, just put it under the rug and put it to the side. Just not dealing with it. Something else is just a tendency towards superficiality. You know, probably the go-to example is just, you know, someone asks how you are, and we all know our stock answer is fine, good, even when most of us are telling a lie a lot when we say that. But you're just accustomed to just putting on a mask. You, know, you put on your happy, suburban, upper-middle-class mask that everyone likes to see, and then that's just kind of your life. Just superficial existence. Something else to be on the lookout for is uh, if you're someone who likes to serve, there's just no peace after serving. Uh, I was at, uh, I think 11 of us went to serve with BOG, this uh, mobile food pantry at their site in Centerville this last Tuesday. And I know there's a team that's going down to the gospel mission this afternoon. Uh, You know, we live out this, uh, try to live out this serve the community value at Southwest. And uh, certainly whenever we go out to serve, it is for someone else. We are being the hands and feet of Jesus. We are never more like Jesus than when we're serving. But also, there's a reason that Jesus has us serve. There is a benefit to us. And it's supposed to be just, you know, kind of giving ourselves or being just generous with our time and resources. But sometimes you'd go and do something like that, and there's a sort of peace that's supposed to come with that because you're doing kingdom work. You're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do and to look like. And you just still feel restless. You just don't have any peace after serving somebody. Here's another one, just having a critical spirit. You go through life complaining. You go through life being cynical and skeptical, and nothing is good enough, and you just, you just poke holes in everything, which I've, kinda, I've, I've lived in that kind of world even for a long time. Not recently. I've kind of given up on that. It's just a terrible way to live. Just this, every, just you're critical about everything, which that can give way to uh, this other thing, just a lack of vulnerability, uh, you live with a very thick skin that you don't let anyone in. You have walls built up. Uh, you have a lot of emotions about things, but you just don't let anyone in, just keeping everyone at arm's length, which is super related to just a general avoidance. That's avoiding people. That's avoiding work. That's avoiding tasks. Uh, even if you're on the introverted side like me, um, just, you just don't want to deal with anything because everything just, even the smallest task can just take so much energy out of you. You just want to avoid just everything at all costs couple more things. One is stinginess, just not being generous. Either That doesn't just have to be money, but just with your time and uh, your encouragement of other people. And then a final thing is just being the bad kind of tired. There's the good kind of tired, and there's a bad kind of tired. For whatever reason, a lot of us have fallen into the idea that we need to schedule every single minute of our life, and the idea of relaxation is just a foreign concept. You know, there's a good kind of busy, you know, a couple of nights, you know, with, uh, you know, at the school, supporting the kid in the, the band concert, the choir concert, or going to whatever uh, game that your kids are a part of, or, you know, a night of serving or a day of rest. Anyway, it's gotten to the point that uh, people are addicted to busyness, and the stock answer for how is life is, I'm busy. And, you know, we just, you know, you said you just, just seem exasperated and exhausted as if, you know, this happened to us and we didn't schedule ourselves out this intensely. The idea of a Sabbath or a day of rest or a day of just doing nothing with your family and enjoying that is becoming less and less common. It's becoming more and more foreign, and people are just exhausted spiritually, emotionally, every type of that. 
as kind of being the bad kind of tire. There's a good kind, there's a bad kind. Anyway, uh, that's just kind of a list of signs, behaviors. If you kind of fall into four or five of that, you might be in a dangerous territory. Just kind of take a look at like, ooh, I need to recalibrate or recenter, just kind of refocus on what, uh, what type of Jesus that I'm actually following. And I think it's these kind of signs of behaviors that Paul sees in the people like Galatia that he sees so damaging and dangerous. You know, people react to the gospel in a whole lot of different ways, and uh, that got me to thinking about this parable that Jesus tells in Mark 4 that we're going to get to. Um, Mark 4, you know, it's pretty early. Jesus just starts his, his public ministry to the region of, um, you know, Galilee and uh, Israel and all that, and... He's bringing the idea of the gospel or the message of, hey, the kingdom is here for the very first time. So there's going to be a lot of reactions. And Jesus tells stories to make everything more palatable, more understandable. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to bring out um, this parable from Mark 4 and kind of bring it into 2016 because I think it very much falls into what the Galatians may have been going through. And I just think it will help bring uh, this material into the present day. But this is from Mark 4. I, t- I took this from the, uh, the message version. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus went back to teaching by the sea, and a crowd built up to such a great size that he had to go into an offshore boat, using the boat as a pulpit as the people pushed to the water's edge. And he taught by using stories, many stories. Listen, what do you make of this? A farmer planted seed. As he scattered the seed, some of it fell on the road and birds ate it. Some fell on the gravel, and it sprouted quickly but didn't put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Some fell on the weeds. As it came up, it was strangled among the weeds, and nothing came of it. And some fell on good earth and came up with a flourish, producing a harvest exceeding his wildest dreams. Then there's some few verses around because uh, he already has his 12 disciples picked out. Um, but uh, in the Gospels, um, especially in Mark, they're kind of portrayed as uh, dense, even stupid. So uh, they're like, hey, we don't get this. So Jesus takes some time, and he defines it, and he brings it back here in verse 13. He explains it to his disciples. He continued, do you see how this story works? All my stories work this way. It says, the farmer plants the word. Some people are like the seed that falls on the hardened soil of the road. No sooner do they hear the word than Satan snatches it away what has been planted in them. And some are like the seed that lands in the gravel. When they first hear the word, they respond with great enthusiasm. But there is such shallow soil of character that when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there is nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. But the seed planted in the good earth represents those who hear the word, embrace it, and produce a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. If we're updating this, actually, there really doesn't have to be a whole lot of updating for this in 2016 Springboro, because the gospel message works the exact same, and the reactions have been the same for 2,000 years. You know, some people hear it, and they're just like, ah, no, I don't get it, or I don't want it. Some people hear it, and they're excited for just like, like it's like a flash in the pan, excitement, and then says that Satan just comes and snatches that away. And then some people hear what Jesus has for them, and... They're just, they're just so on fire. They're so excited about it. But then uh, it, just, it was just really shallow stuff. As soon as even the slightest difficulty comes their way, they think that God has given up on them. They thought that if they accept Jesus, then all problems go away, which it just doesn't work that way. And some people, they accept that, but then, you know, difficult times come, and they just kind of re- get back to this, you know, things that um, they want or things that they want to do that goes contrary to what Jesus has for them. They just put Jesus to the side, 
And then there are some who they experience the gospel message and it legitimately changes them from the inside out and um, their lives are fruitful. I say not without difficulty, not without pain, but it's fruitful, full of blessing and you can see just how their own life has changed and how their life has changed for other people. If I were guessing, it sounds like the Galatians were those who were really excited about it, but as soon as some difficulty came their way, they just kind of put Jesus back to the side. Just reading this, it kind of feels like the Galatians feel that way, or maybe they, uh, some just heard the gospel and just Satan just took it away from them that quickly. I just can't get over how, uh, you know, we've seen Paul's anger, and he gets into the section that we're going to read here in a second where he just seems uh, nothing less than he's just devastated. He's heartbroken. You know, there's a, as I reflect on my own walk with Jesus, um, if, if ever I have regrets about it, which I typically don't, but sometimes I wish that um, I, I came to Jesus er, later in my life, maybe in my teen years or maybe even beyond that. See, I just grew up going to church. Rare was the weekend where we weren't in the church building, and I owe a lot to that discipline growing up. But uh, something that I tend to notice is there seems to be, um, again, this isn't you know across the board 100% true, but there tends to be a difference between those who grow up with Jesus, grow up in the church, and those who uh, come to Jesus later in life. People who tend to come to Jesus later in life, I've just noticed that there's more of a, an excitement or a passion about them. Probably, if I'm guessing, it's because that they know what life was like when they didn't have Jesus at all. And people like me have just kind of always been there. So I was thinking about this. You know, when we come to Jesus, there's this, there's this excitement. You know, there's this, uh, there's this passion about it. You know, we, we're excited. You know, we're learning all this new stuff. And yeah, Jesus seems to be the way for me. And, you know, we get over here and we get dunked. And there's tears and there's pictures and there's families. And there's all the hugging. And we're just so excited. We are so on fire that if God asked us to, we would invade hell with a squirt gun if only we were asked. It's that level of excitement. <laughs> but then... You know, life happens, and uh, I, I wouldn't fault anyone for this, but that enthusiasm just kind of naturally wanes. It kind of naturally goes away for everybody. And you have seasons of passion, and you have seasons of excitement, and then you have seasons where you're just trying to be faithful, and that's where all your energy is going. This isn't the biggest question that we'll ask this morning, but I just kind of want to throw out there, when was the last time you remember feeling that level of passion and excitement for Jesus that lasted for a few days or even a few weeks? And as you think about the last time you felt that, does the answer to that question bother you? Again, not the biggest question we're asking today, but I wanted to ask it anyway. So Paul wants these people to feel this once again, to enjoy this on-fire passion, um, all-in attitude toward Jesus that, he, that they had when he left them. So he keeps writing. Before I read this, uh, there's going to be a few verses here. Uh, most scholars tend to think that Paul had a serious, you know, eye illness or disease. So just be mindful of that when I read these verses. Anyway, back into verse 12 from Galatians 4. Paul writes, you did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were, on, as, as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given it to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Those false teachers, they're so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. 
They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. Now, if someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Uh, I I really believe that when we get right down to it, that there are only two reasons why... Uh, two reasons why people don't follow Jesus. I think that either they just haven't heard about who Jesus is, or if they have heard about Jesus, then they just completely misunderstand why he came to earth and just all about his identity. I really think those are the only two reasons. They either have never heard of Jesus, or they misunderstand who he is. I honestly cannot fathom anything outside of that. You know, when we, decide to, uh, when we decide to trust in, believe in, put our faith in Jesus, we do get to experience a life of freedom. Many of you in this room have gotten to experience that sort of freedom. You know, freedom from sin's ugliness or freedom from this idea of not feeling good enough. You know, freedom from feeling weighed down and trapped by, you know, fill in the blank. And we even get to experience this freedom from death itself. That's one of the benefits of following Jesus. Just all of that. But until we decide to actually take a step forward and believe Jesus can do these things for us, we are never going to experience God fully. You know, when we decide to give our lives to Jesus, that's when we get all the benefits. That's when we get, um, you know, com- get that full, complete title of Son of God or Daughter of God. And we get the gift of the Holy Spirit when we give our life. You know, we, we show this sign of obedience in baptism. This morning, it's all about choosing, are we going to take on the identity, all the benefits of adoption uh, as a child of God, or are we going to choose a life of just slavery? Slavery to whatever. Many of us, we've been going to church all our lives, but we've been uh, still enslaved to the idea of trying to earn our salvation or, or just being slave to the idea of being good enough. That's not following Jesus. If that's you, you've probably been wondering why following Jesus has been so frustrating for so much of your life. It's not about the rules. It's not about the check marks. Kind of our big line for this morning is this, you know, until you trust Jesus, you'll never know what getting all the blessings of being a child of God is like. You just won't. You can watch people from afar, those who have given their lives to Jesus. You can be in here week in and week out and just feel like, you know, I'm just not getting it. Well, there's a reason. There comes a point where you fully have to trust Jesus. Not that that trust won't waver every now and again, but just wanting that more than anything else. Right now, I want to kind of move into the uh, communion time. Uh, So people are going to get up. We're going to uh, pass this. Uh, There's that verse, you know, I think uh, either verse 4 or verse 5, where it says that just just at the right time, you know, Jesus came and changed everything. God had this on the calendar. God had this scheduled. It was all part of the big plan. And for those who uh, call themselves Jesus followers, for those of you who have uh, put your faith and trust and belief in Jesus for salvation and for, um, and for holy living, uh, you know that at this time of communion we celebrate this moment where everything changed for us. This moment where uh, Jesus voluntarily sacrifices himself through crucifixion for people then and for people for all time. And so this is the moment where we honor that, we commemorate that, we give Jesus worship and, uh, and uh, gratitude in this moment. 
Um, so if you would, pray with me, and they're going to pass. Just treat this moment as, treat this moment as holy.